This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. So we have been in this series on the book of James. Pastor Byron started it a few months ago, and I thought this morning, since he's not here, let's kind of prove to him that we've been paying attention a little bit. So we're going to start with a game, and this game is called Which James Said It? So I'm going to throw a quote on the screen, and you've got to tell me whether it was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, or if this was another famous James who said it. And I'm going to throw a softball first just to kind of get you used to the game. So here's number one. Which James said it? I've got soul and I'm super bad. Was that James, the brother of Jesus, or the king of funk, James Brown? James Brown. All right. Not that summer crowd, and you guys are like, almost all of you participated and got it right. Very good. All right. They're going to get a little bit harder from here, but I still think you guys can do it. Number two. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature. Was that James, the brother of Jesus, or James Monroe? And real quick, before you answer, we do kind of a run-through in the morning, and the band was here when we were going through this, and I had to explain who James Monroe was. So I'm just, I, you don't have to tell me if you need to know, I'm just going to tell you, so we don't have to, it doesn't have to be awkward. James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States, but, but once I told that group that he was in Hamilton, then they all knew, oh yeah, James Monroe, I know who you're talking about. But James Monroe was a former president way back in the day, so who said that, James the brother of Jesus or James Monroe? Well, not confident at all. Yes, James, the brother of Jesus, is the right answer. Almost got you on that one. Okay, next one. One of the hardest things in life is having words you can't utter. We just got done with chapter 3. He talked a lot about words. Was that James, the brother of Jesus, or James Earl Jones? James Earl Jones. I kind of tricked you there with my setup. But yes, James Earl Jones said that, not James, the brother of Jesus. And the final one. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. Is that James, the brother of Jesus, or the king, LeBron James? Who was it? Oh, someone very confidently. Yes, it was James. He's probably a huge LeBron James fan, knows he would have never said that. But yes, that was, that was James, the brother of Jesus. He said that. So good. I think we can report back confidently that you've been at least somewhat paying attention during the series, but um, Pastor Byron finished up chapter 3 last week. We're going to roll into chapter 4. In the first three chapters, James is talking a lot about how we live out our faith. So when we come to faith in Christ, that's an internal decision, right? That The Bible talks about it in terms of salvation or being saved. It's this moment that you recognize that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he came, he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can now be in a relationship with God. And then in the third day, he rose again to show that this relationship isn't temporary. It is a forever, eternal relationship with God. So that's a free gift that God offers us through his son, Jesus. There's nothing we do to earn that, right? It's just a decision we make internally to accept that gift from God. So James is saying, hey, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, and you've made that decision, then that should manifest itself or express itself outwardly. 
then there should be a change in your life, right? That there should be something different about you now that you believe in this Jesus. And so it should change your relationships. It should change how you approach marriage. It should change your friendships. It should change how you approach your kids. It should change how you approach your finances. It should change how you approach what you say in your words. It should change your priorities. When we, when we claim faith in Jesus and become a follower of Christ, it really should express itself outwardly. It should change our behavior. It should change how we interact with the world. And so these first three chapters, James is addressing this outward behavior. And so just to go back and recap who James is, we know he was the brother of Jesus, the half-brother. Um, he was the full son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, so God is his father. But they were half-brothers. They grew up together. And here's the crazy thing about James is he did not come to faith in Jesus as the Son of God until after the resurrection. So he grew up, like, playing with Jesus, eating dinner with the family with Jesus, knew all about Jesus' ministry, his claims that he was the Son of God, but James didn't believe it. And you can imagine trying to convince your brother that you were the Son of God. I, I understand where James was at. That's a difficult thing to swallow. But do you know why? Do you know why James came to faith in Christ? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that the resurrected Jesus, after he had died, showed up and appeared to James. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was skeptical of my brother, claiming he was the son of God, if he showed up after he had died, right in front of me, appeared to me, done deal. Now I believe. And that was the case with James. He saw the resurrected Christ. He saw his brother raised from the dead, and at that point, the Bible tells us that James became a tremendous leader in the first generation church in and around Jerusalem. And so James becomes passionate about these Jewish Christians. So the, these were the first Christians. They grew up Jewish. They believed Jesus was the Messiah. And, and then they come to faith in Jesus, and they were known as the way. And so James becomes their leader, and he's noticing something. He, he's looking around Jerusalem. He's getting reports from other areas of these Jewish Christians, and something's off. It's like their behavior isn't matching the faith that they profess. And so I don't know if you've ever like watched a show or a movie and like the audio doesn't quite match up with the video. Like that drives me nuts. Like, my brain short circuits after five seconds. Like, I cannot handle it. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie that's been dubbed in English. Like, I would rather turn the sound off and just read the captions. Like, I, my brain cannot, I can't deal with it. This is kind of what James is saying. He's like, listen, like, I know you're claiming that you have faith in Christ. I know you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of the way. But your life doesn't reflect that. It's, it's showing something totally different. There's a disconnect here, and, and we've got to address that. And so James, in these first three chapters, he's been a, addressing these symptoms. He talks about how, listen, you can't just be a hearer of the word. You've got to be a doer of the word. You, you, your faith, yeah, great, you've got faith, but without works, it's dead. Like, I understand you've come to salvation in Christ, but if it's not showing itself on the outside, then what's the point? It's, it's dead. In chapter 3, he talks a ton about the tongue and our words and how important those are, that we should use the power of our words to encourage, not to tear down. 
And so he's addressed all of these outward symptoms, all of these external behaviors. And we're going to make this big transition in chapter 4 because James is finally going to address the heart of the matter. We can address the symptoms all day. You can take aspirin for your headache, do what you need to do. But if there's something going on inside that we don't address, we never can really fix the problem. And so James is finally making his way to, hey, let's figure out what's at the heart of the issue here. Let's address the core problem that's going on. So this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So James is looking around at these Christians, both in Jerusalem, hearing reports around the area, that there are quarrels and fights among them. And these aren't just like petty arguments. These aren't just little disagreements. Like, these are fights. These are serious conflicts. The, the language here is kind of communicating that there is a contempt and a vindictiveness motivating these fights. That they kind of, like, hate each other. Like, they are at each other. And James is like, here we go again. Like, we've got another outward expression of your faith that does not match your inward faith. Like, what is going on here? You were supposed to be Christians. You, you were supposed to be following the way. You're supposed to be following Jesus. Why does your outward behavior look like the rest of the world? And listen, I want to be clear that we can be Christians. Like, if you claim faith in Jesus, like, we can be Christians and we can disagree about things. Like, I've got a ton of Christian friends that we disagree about some things theologically. But we do that in love. Like, I still support them, encourage them. They do the same for me. Like, you can have disagreements and still live in harmony with one another. This is not what James is talking about. This is vindictive. This is contempt. This is, they do not like one another. And James sees that this is damaging in two ways. Number one, he knows that if they continue down this road, like, they're going to miss out God's best for them. And number two, if they're acting like this, this is what the outside world sees. And how can they influence the outside world for Christ if their lives look just like everybody else's? If it doesn't look like that inward faith has made an outward difference. And so James wants to address this, and then he finally says, here's, here's the root cause. Here is the issue we're all facing. He continues and says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you. Listen, so many times when it comes to conflict in our life or when it comes to our audio not matching our video or maybe we've gone down the wrong path, isn't it our first inclination so many times to blame somebody else for that or to blame our circumstances for that? And James wants to make it very clear from the outset, no, 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 no. Don't they come from within you? Don't they come from your desires that are warring within you? Like, let's not point the finger. Let's not blame circumstances. Let's not blame other people. Like, this is a you issue. This is an internal issue. And this is the problem that we need to address. And he says that you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, let me pause for a second. James doesn't pull any punches. Like, if you've been uh, attending for the last few months as, we, as we've been going through the book, like James is very to the point. He uses very strong language. And he often uses hyperbole or exaggerated language to get your attention. This is what he's doing here. 
Like, there's no record that Christians were actually killing each other because they were mad at one another. But James is saying, listen, because of this vindictiveness, because of your desires inside of you, because you want something, like, you're killing your relationships. You're killing your witness. You're killing your ability to influence others. Like, do you see what this desire inside of you is doing? And he continues, but you covet what you cannot have. So you go after it by fighting and quarreling. Like, what's going on? You're supposed to be believers. You're supposed to be unified. In fact, James probably remembered back to when Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he, he prays. It's this long prayer recorded in the book of John. And at one point in John 17, listen to what he says. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. James is looking around, seeing that the church is supposed to be unified. Again, not agree on everything, but, but unified, like together. And he's seeing all of this vindictive fighting and quarreling. And to the point where we're like wanting to kill in our hearts, like what, what is happening? He continues. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Plain and simple, like you are not going to the source. But even when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Like even, even when they were trying to do the spiritual thing, even when they were trying to pray, they were praying for their own stuff. They were praying based on their own desires. And here's the ultimate point James is making. When you become a follower of Christ, you, you get this compass. And this compass, based on the Holy Spirit, God's presence in your life, based on the Word of God, is supposed to point you in the direction that God has for your life. It's supposed to put you on the path that God has designed for you, the abundant life. Everything that you ever need, everything that you ever want, that you desire, can be found on this path. But sometimes, our compass gets miscalibrated, and it points us in the wrong direction. And it points us where we're motivated by our own desires, our own pleasures, our own self-fulfillment. And that's what's happening. James is looking around and saying, oh my gosh, like your compass is pointed the wrong direction. You are basing your life on your, on your own pleasures, on your own desires, and you're going after these things, and you're willing to destroy relationships to get them. And James's concern is, and you keep going down this road, it is going to end really badly. And we know that from our own experience, right? You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to think about a decision, two decisions, maybe a hundred decisions that you've made in your life that have been motivated by pursuing your own pleasure or your own self-fulfillment. How have those ended for you? Maybe in the interim, maybe temporarily you found some pleasure, some fulfillment, but that always ends in destruction. It always ends in misery. And so James sees where this is going, and he so desperately wants to recalibrate their compass, point them back to the road that God has for them. And let me talk about like pleasure and fulfillment for a second, because so many times we have, we have this misunderstanding when it comes to following God's path for our life. We, we think that if we will submit ourselves to God and, and choose his path, so many times we think we have to give up or forfeit pleasure and fulfillment. Like, oh, that's, that's for the world's path. Like, I guess if I'm going to follow Jesus, I, I got to give all that stuff up. 
nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to what God says in Psalm 1611, and do not miss this. You make known to me the path of life. Again, God's going to make it very clear through his word, through his Holy Spirit. Hey, this is the path. I promise you, this is the path you want to be on. And look what's on that path. When you're on that path, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, we think chasing what the world has for us is going to give us the pleasure, the fulfillment that we're looking for. It is the exact opposite. If we will point our compass to true north, we will get on the path that God has for us. Pleasure and fulfillment, they are a guaranteed byproduct of following Jesus, of following God's path for your life. Here's a quick rule of thumb. Pleasure and fulfillment are excellent byproducts, but they are terrible life goals. They are excellent byproducts, but they are terrible life goals. If your life is driven by your own pleasure, your own fulfillment, it's not going to end well. And Jesus has promised you can have all of that by choosing to follow him. And so James, he's, he's recognizing what's happening here, and he's like, man, we, we, got, we got to fix this. So again, James comes strong. It's about to get a little bit worse, let me just warn you. It does get better, I promise, but again, James, he's about to roll up the sleeves and punch us right in the face. So here we go. He continues in verse 4. You adulterous people. How many of you thought when you woke up this morning that I just want to come to church and hear the pastor call me adulterous? Like, that'll be great. That's what I'm looking for. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, there is a lot to unpack here. There is a lot of harsh language James uses. There's a lot that can be misinterpreted. So we're going to spend a few moments here. When, when James uses the term adulterous, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to an Old Testament audience. These were Jewish families, Jewish individuals. They grew up um, understanding the Old Testament. A lot of them memorized the Old Testament. So we're very familiar with, with God's law. Well, the story of the Old Testament and, and this image that we, we see throughout Scripture, really, is this idea that, that God, as a heavenly father, is also kind of viewed as a husband. He is married to the people of Israel. God's chosen people, and they are in a covenant relationship with one another. Like, God makes these promises to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel say, yes, we agree to these promises. We, we want to live the life that you have marked out for us. And so they enter this covenant relationship. Well, the story of the Old Testament is God keeping his promise every single time, God being a faithful husband, God always providing for them, always supplying for their needs, and Israel doing the exact opposite. Israel not keeping the covenant. Israel partnering with nations that were detestable. There are stories in the Old Testament of the people of Israel making partnerships with countries and nations who would be involved in these like unbelievable like sexual rights and practices that were so far outside of God's plan for them. There are stories that they would align themselves with nations that would be involved in like human sacrifice and even child sacrifice. And so there were these prophets in the Old Testament 
that would try to get Israel back on track. Like, come back to your first love. Do you see what you're doing? And they oftentimes would describe what Israel was doing as adultery. And so we can understand that in human terms, right? Like, when you think about adultery, like, the most intimate, physical, and emotional gift that you share with another person in the context of marriage, if you choose to give that to somebody else outside of that relationship, it is one of the most deeply hurtful things you can experience. And for those of you that maybe have been through it, like, listen, I get it, and and I pray for you. And the good news is God's healing power is always strong enough to overcome whatever hurts we have in our life. But I think the reason that James is going back to this language is to help us understand that, listen, you cannot be married to God and sleeping with somebody else over here. It does not work that way. And so he's, he's going back to their knowledge of the Old Testament, these Old Testament prophets saying, hey, this is what you're doing. You're choosing something so much less than when God has got everything for you on this path. And then he continues and says, listen, if, if you do this, if you choose that path, it's like you're a friend to the world and an enemy to God. Like very black and white language that he's using. Like there's, there's no in-between. And so at times, people have used this particular passage and they've taken it out of context. They, they've isolated it. And so I do want to clarify what James is saying here. See, so many times people think if you become a Christian, you, you have to separate yourself, remove yourself from everything that's worldly. Like, if it doesn't say Jesus or God on it, then we can't be a part of it. And that is not what James is talking about here. Have you, have you ever, like, known a, a Christian friend that maybe made you feel guilty because you watched a certain movie that had some cussing in it or something? Or, or they make you feel guilty because you listen to secular music? Like, th- this is not the point James is making. And, and in fact, the Bible's very clear that we're to be in the world, just not of the world. We're to engage with the world. We're to try to help influence the world. We're just not to be of the world. The Bible says that Jesus was a friend to sinners. Like, he hung around sinful people. He hung around prostitutes and tax collectors. Like, Jesus understood there was this this distinction, but he recognized that he's to be in the world, not of the world. That's the same thing he calls us today. I think alcohol is a great example. So for some of you, some of you have made the decision that, you know what, I'm going to abstain from alcohol. And the reason you've made that decision is because maybe there's alcoholism in your family or some issues with alcohol, and you know that's the wise decision for you. But here's what Scripture says, right? Scripture's very clear that the line when it comes to alcohol is do not get drunk. Like, don't kind of lose your mind where you lose control of your faculties. Like, that's... That's the line. Let's not do that. Let's be drunk with the Holy Spirit, but let's not get drunk on wine and alcohol. So, for some of you, you can have alcohol in moderation, and it doesn't bother you. You can enjoy a drink every now and then, and it's totally fine. But right, there's not one rule for everybody. You've got to listen to the Holy Spirit in your own life. You've got to discern for you, like, where is that line? And I would encourage each one of you, when it comes to all of these gray areas in life, like you really need to ask yourself, is it, is it causing temptation? Is it leading me down the road of sin? And if it is, I need to back it up a little bit. In fact, back it up a lot. Um, let, let's stay away from those things. But 
There's a lot of latitude, right, in what we can enjoy as long as it doesn't start to influence us and lead us down a path that we shouldn't go. So listen, like you can go see the Spider-Man movie and still love Jesus. Like you can watch The Office and still love Jesus. Like it is okay. Um, But we just need to be careful that when it comes to engaging with the world, that we're not going too far down the road where it is influencing our witness or influencing our ability to be a follower of Christ. So I want to make sure that there's that distinction. There have been some groups in the past that say, like, you do anything related to the world and you are just a heathen, and they, they use this verse as their support. Not the case. What James is saying, what he's saying then is that there are going to be decisions that are black and white. You are going to have decisions in your life where it is very clear you either choose God's path or you choose the world's path. If you're at work and you've engaged in an emotional relationship with someone that's not your wife or not your husband, very clear. Like you can go down God's path and try to honor your marriage and in that relationship, or you can tiptoe down the world's path and see how far down you get before it leads to destruction. But it's very clear. When it comes to our finances, right? A lot of latitude when it comes to God gifting us, blessing us with financial gain. But where we don't have any latitude is when it comes to the tithe. He's very clear. Hey, you can go God's way. I've given it to you all anyways. All I'm asking is that you bring 10% back. So God's way, or, or you can choose the world's way. And I'm going to just, you know, I'll give a few percent to the church or whatever, but I'm going to kind of keep the rest of myself. Like, clear decision. But there's a lot of gray decisions. Like, where you go to college, what house you buy, what job you take. Like, there's nothing in Scripture that says you have to do this, this, and this. But when it comes to those black and white decisions, when it's very clear that you can either follow God's path or you can follow the world's path, this is what James is talking about. You cannot be married to God and be sleeping with somebody else. There is no middle ground when it comes to those black and white decisions. So let's go back to that image of adultery. And this is where we get a sense for God's emotions. And it's a tough thing for us as humans to wrap our mind around a perfect and holy God and how he experiences emotions. But, but it's clear that this is emotional for God. And listen to what it says. It says, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that is within you? Now, I, I don't think God, like, gets his feelings hurt because we choose the world over him. I think it's way deeper than that. I think the reason James uses this image of adultery, I think the reason he uses the word jealous is because God recognizes better than anybody else that if you continue going down this path, he sees what's at the end, and it breaks his heart. He does not want to see his child go down that path where that path ends. He also sees at the same time what could be. He also sees the path that you could be on and the life that it does lead to. And so when God says he jealously longs for the spirit inside of you, that is what it's talking about. He is heartbroken because he knows you're choosing a path that's going to end very badly for you. And that at the same time, he's got a path that leads to abundant life. So James has come strong, these first five verses. But we are about to get the good news. 
And this is like a huge transition in these verses. And look at what he says in verse 6. But he gives us more grace. Listen, I do not know how far down this road you've gone. But he gives us more grace. I don't know how many bad decisions you've made in your life. He gives you more grace. I don't know if you think you're too far gone. You've made the worst decision of your life. The Bible says that he gives you more grace. Here is the beautiful thing about God your Father. Is that it does not matter how far down that road you've gone. It does not matter how much you think you've screwed up your life. He still has more grace. And you can quickly make a course correction and get back on the path that God has for you. And that's what James is going to do the rest of these verses. He is going to lay out, hey, if you're going down this road, if, if your video doesn't match your audio and you're claiming to know Jesus, but your life certainly doesn't look like it, all you have to do is this to course correct. And here's how he starts. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to, you've got to humble yourself. So in that same verse, he says, this is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. What does true biblical humility look like? It's not a, sorry, I got caught, God. Like, dang it, I wish you wouldn't have seen that or, you know, I wish my wife wouldn't have seen that. Now I'm in trouble. That's, that's not what it's talking about. Let's go back to the first verse and where James is addressing what's the, what's the root cause we've got to recognize that the reason we've chosen the path that we're on is because of us. We can't blame anybody else. We can't blame our circumstances. We've got to come to the realization that it was our decisions. It was our choices that led us down this path. And so humility is an acknowledgement of, hey, I've chosen the wrong path, God, and I, I truly am sorry for that. And I recognize what it's done in my life. I've, I recognize what it's done in the people that are close to me. And, and so we, we repent, we recognize that we've got to humble ourselves. This was on us, and we turn towards God. And then the second thing he says to do after we humble ourselves is you've got to submit. You've got to submit to God. Submit yourselves then to God. James, again, very clear, very clear what we need to do. So what is submission? So again, going back to that decision to accept Christ, like that's this one decision in a moment. You recognize who Jesus is. He's died for you. you. You've got eternal life. You've got the spirit inside of you. Now the rest of our lives is this active submission, trusting that God's path really is the best. It's this choosing that, Lord, even if I don't understand all of your commands, even if it doesn't make sense to me all the time, I am going to submit my will to you. Because I trust that you really do know best. That if I want to experience pleasure, if I want to experience fulfillment, if I want to experience the abundant life, then the path you have marked out for me, that's the one that I want to be on. And so I'm going to choose to submit. I'm going to be discerning when it comes to the Holy Spirit, when he's speaking to me. I'm going to be in the word of God and understand your commands. I am going to submit to you. And that's number two. Number three, then he says, resist the devil. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Now, it's always interesting talking about the devil in church. Um, we've got people from probably all kinds of different backgrounds. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you grew up in a different faith. Uh, maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you just know the devil from culture. Well, whatever it is, we've got kind of this, like, huge spectrum of what people think about Satan. So I don't, you know, it would take a whole series to go through all of that, but I do want to give us kind of a kind of what, what that looks like and where we often like lean one direction or the other and make sure we have a, a true and firm understanding of who Satan is. So there are people in life that kind of fall on this side of the spectrum that think like the devil is around every corner. He's going to just jump out and like ruin my life at any moment. And I, I don't know, how do I protect myself from the devil? What, what, what do I do? And they're, they're consumed with Satan and the devil and what he's going to do to destroy their lives. Then you've got people on this side of the spectrum that are like, Satan? And what, that's just a myth. Like, I don't know. Like, it's spiritual stuff. Like, who cares? Like, I'm good. Like, you know, me and God, we're, we're tight. I, I don't care about Satan or the devil. That's not good either. So the truth falls usually in the middle. And in the Old Testament, it is very clear, very clear, there is an enemy. There is someone named Satan. We see it in the very first book of the Bible. It doesn't take us very long to see that he is here to try to ruin humanity. We also see in the Old Testament the story of how Satan became a presence on this earth. He was thrown out of heaven with a third of the angels, and they're what we call demons now. And they roam the earth. They are alive and well. There is a true spiritual realm. And we do have to understand that Satan is there to destroy us. He wants nothing more than to destroy our lives. So if that's the reality, what, what do we do about it? See, what, what James says is, Resist the devil. Resist the devil. And then, then what happens? He flees from you. See, if you are a believer, if you truly have the presence of God inside of you, you do not need to be walking around in fear all the time of, oh my gosh, what's Satan going to do? We have to have a healthy respect that he's trying to destroy our lives. But when we recognize that he's taking us to a place of temptation or we know, uh-oh, I'm getting too close to the, to the road that... To, it's going to lead to destruction. What, what, what do I need to do here? James says resist. And if you resist, he will flee from you. We do not have to be scared. We do not have to be fearful. Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If you are a believer, you have the power over Satan. He cannot destroy your lives. If you will resist him, he will flee from you. That takes us to the fourth thing that James says. If you want to get back on the path to God, then you've got to come near to God. Now, this is interesting because, again, Old Testament audience, they, they didn't know what it was to come near to God. If you're not familiar in the Old Testament, the presence of God was in this physical place called the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was in this inner room in the temple, and it represented God's presence. It was called the Holy of Holies. And there were only a few people that were allowed in the Holy of Holies. Only the priests, only the Levites. They were the only one allowed in the room where the presence of God resided. So common people, people in the public, they didn't know what it was to come near to the presence of God. They just knew the, the priest kind of took care of it, and they, they didn't have to, like, go into his presence. I think one of the most powerful images in all the Bible is the Bible tells us that when Jesus dies on the cross, the moment that he dies, 
there is this thick, heavy curtain that separates the Holy of Holies in the temple from all of the common and public areas. And it says in that moment when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. And it represents the fact that Jesus' presence is no longer confined to this one specific place in the temple. In fact, the New Testament says this, that you, that I, when we accept Christ, we are the temple of God. That God's presence resides inside of us. That we can now come near to God. And so many times when it comes to our Christian relationship, we, we get so focused on, oh, I've got to be obedient. I've got to do the things in God's word. I've just got to, I got to live a good life. And we totally miss out on the main point. And the main point is that we've been invited into this personal relationship with a heavenly father. And James is reminding them, listen, if you will come near to God, he will come near to you. Now, the rest of those verses, I'm not going to read them, but we can throw them on the screen. There's some more like strong language about humility. And, and what James is saying is, listen, you don't need to walk around like grieving and mourning and crying all the time. But the point is this, this idea of humility, it's very important. It's very important that you recognize what your own choices have done. And you, you've got to come humbly before God. And at the very end of that verse, what does it say? He will lift you up. It reminds me of the story in the New Testament that Jesus tells. It's called the prodigal son. And if you're not familiar with the story, there's this dad and he has two sons. And in those times, like, there was only a certain time that you could take the inheritance. And so his youngest son, he had not reached that point in life, but he was just ready to get out of the house. He was fed up with his family. He wanted to go sow his wild oats. And so he asked for his inheritance early. And the father reluctantly gives it to him, grants the request. And so Jesus tells us that son goes off and he parties hard and just lives a life of debauchery and just squanders his, his wealth in no time at all. He finds himself totally poor, totally destitute. He's homeless. He gets a job as a servant and he's feeding pigs and he's so hungry that he just wants to eat the slop that he's feeding the pigs. And then he thinks to himself, you know what? And I've really screwed up. And I don't know what damage I've done to my relationship with my father, but I know that if I go back, even if he doesn't call me a son, even if I can just be a servant in his house, at least I'll have a roof over my head and at least I'll get a meal. And so the Bible tells us that the son goes back, travels back to his father's house. And then Jesus says, the father is looking for him. He's waiting for him. And it says that when the son was a far distance off, that the father got out of the house and ran to him, put his arms around his neck, hugged him. He did not judge him. He did not condemn him. He put a ring on his finger, and he threw a party for that son. That is the picture of our heavenly father, that no matter how far down, this road you've gone, no matter, no matter what terrible, bad decisions you've made, you are never too far gone to course correct. And when you do, when you humble yourself, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, if you will choose to come near to God, he will come running to you and put his arms around your neck, put a ring on your finger, 
and throw a party. He wants nothing more than to fix the relationship and put you on the road that is filled with joy, that is filled with eternal pleasures. Maybe you're here this morning and that's what you need. You, you need that course correction. But maybe you're here and, and you've never made that decision to follow Christ. What we talked about at the beginning, you've never come to the place in your life where you recognize that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he died so that your sins could be forgiven, that you could have an eternal home in heaven. Every Sunday at C3, we want to give people an opportunity to make that decision. So if everyone will bow their heads, close their eyes, if that's you this morning and, and you want to make the decision, accept the gift that God offers us in Jesus, again, that's all it is, is you just accepting. You can pray this prayer, you can pray it out loud, you can just repeat after me in your heart, but you just say, dear Jesus, I acknowledge, I admit that I've gone down my own road and that this sin that I have in my life, it has separated me from you. But I, had, I acknowledge that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for my sins so that I could have an eternal relationship with you. And so as best as I know how, I, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe in, believe in my heart that you rose again. And I give my life to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just prayed that prayer, we would love to know it. You can text your name to 407-487-8311 and Pastor Byron will be praying for you this week. And also, we want to thank you for your faithful generosity. You can go to giveC3.cc or you can text C3 Orlando to 77977. Thank you so much for how you give. And if you are in Central Florida, please join us in person at our campus at 9.30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Have a great week.